0: Real languages are not sort of slightly mangled versions of a purer, sort of more orderly linguistic system. Instead, language is really a matter of collaborative improvisation, where we find effective ways of meeting the communicative demands of the moment, just like you do when you place your rates. Thus, it might make it easier for a second language learner if they know that there's no perfect way of speaking that particular language. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language.
1: Morton Christensen explains how language is like charades while discussing his new book, The Language Game. He also reassures us that we shouldn't fear artificial intelligence taking over the world or the field of poetry.
2: Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University.
1: And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We are excited to speak with Morten Christensen today. Dr. Christensen is a cognitive scientist and the William R. Keenan, Jr. professor of psychology at Cornell.
2: His newest co-authored book is titled The Language Game, How Improvisation Created Language and Changed the World and we look forward to hearing more about it.
1: Welcome to Speaking of Language, Morton. Thanks for having me.
2: What prompted your interest in language, and what is your own background with world languages?
0: Well, I, I grew up in Denmark, so I'm a native speaker of Danish. And given that it's a language that only has about five and a half million speakers, you essentially need to be able to speak more than one language. So growing up, uh, we had exposure to both Swedish and Norwegians, which are sort of um, sort of sister languages, so to speak. They're mm-hmm. fairly closely related. But, of course, also English we had in school, so hence I'm speaking English now. But I also had German um, as well as French. And then as uh, extra, for extra fun, I took Latin as well, which I really enjoyed, actually so did I. And, and at university uh, in Denmark, I did my undergrad work in Denmark, um, you know, you were expected to be able to read text in English in mm-hmm. German, French, and of course, Danish and other Scandinavian languages.
2: Wow. That's, that's quite prolific there.
1: Yes. Uh, so let's jump in and talk about your book, The Language Game. Um, in the book, you compare and contrast the idea of language as an information exchange with an improvisation-based model that you liken to a game of charades. Can we start with a brief rundown of these two takes on what language is? What led you to make these distinctions?
0: For more than half a century, uh, language scientists have been viewing language through Uh, the lens of information exchange between computers where you have messages encoded uh, at one computer into little packages and then transmitted over the internet or wireless and so on to another computer somewhere else. And that computer uses exactly the same methods to decode those packages into whatever information was there. And so when it comes to language, people have been looking at language as very similarly such that the idea is that speakers would Use our knowledge of language, uh, grammar, vocabulary to encode whatever we wanted to say into an utterance that we then would utter, and then the listener would then, when they heard what we said, then would then use the exact same knowledge of language in reverse to decode the message. Now, we argue in the book that uh, linguistic communication uh, is not like this game of tennis where messages are mm-hmm. lobbed back and forth. Uh, and each person taking a turn being a sender or receiver. Instead, what we have suggested is that languages like a gamer's raids, where we improvise to provide clues to each other to help understand what it is we want to say. So, the crucial point here is that linguistic communication is fundamentally collaborative. So, as a listener, we're not passively waiting to receive a message, like a computer might do. But we're actually using what we know about each other, what was said previously, what we know about the world, and so on, to understand what it is that's being said. So what we're doing is that we're working together, collaboratively, to build up a shared understanding, one improvisation after another, just like we might do in a game of charades.
2: Well, and it's interesting because in the book you also say, um, talking about playing tennis, that you do that without knowing the laws of physics, right? And so that the use of language is so context-dependent and depending on what you are talking about, it really doesn't matter what the definition of a word is in a dictionary, right? Because it depends on how it is used in a particular context.
0: Exactly. And so, for example, if you just take a a simple word like door. Um, If I say, open the door, then what we're referring to as a door is this solid object that we are sort of moving uh, to open, uh, to create an opening. Yet, if I say, oh, can you go through the door? Then clearly you're not going through a solid object, but actually you're going through the opening that was just made by opening the door. So here we have the same word door used slightly differently and meaning completely different things. And we don't even notice that there's a difference in meaning here. It's sort of, we're so used to sort of Mm. meaning, sort of being shape shifters or changing whatever they are. Yet the context is crucial for understanding uh, what a word like door means.
2: Yeah. So in language education and world language education, um, educators tend to really like grammar and they rely on teaching paradigms and things like this. And the notion of universal grammar is is um, deeply rooted in, in second language acquisition and, and how we perceive, or how we approach, language education. What's your take on universal grammar?
0: Well, I don't think we have any, I guess that's a short,
2: <laughs> short answer. But, Sam, um, we need, uh, we need um, sound effects. Yeah, I was going to say... I think we like, need some applause here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, so, so I think I think actually, this is also might be useful for thinking about, say, second language learning as well. So I think seeing language as your rates uh, will help us shape this intuitive and mistaken picture of how language works that you know goes to the notion of, of um, say, universal grammar. So, oftentimes, the sort of rough and tumble uh, of everyday language, we kind of want to think of as a pale shadow of this underlying ideal language. That's what we are trying to learn when we are learning a second language or even our first language. Um, And this notion that words have clear meanings and they're put together according to sort of well-defined rules. That's kind of what we often are taught when learning a second language. But this, we think, this traditional story has things exactly uh, looking at it exactly the wrong way. It has things exactly backward. Real languages are not sort of slightly mangled versions of a purer, sort of more orderly linguistic system. Instead, language is really a matter of collaborative improvisation where we find effective ways of meeting the communicative demands of the moment, just like you do when you place your rates. And what this means is that when we see stable grammatical regularities, it's not like they're not due to some built-in grammars in our head, but they're not the starting point, rather they are sort of the end point Mm -hmm. that they emerge through countless of communicative sort of interactions where people are trying to sort of get their meaning across in the moment as best as they can. And so when we look at language this way, I think it might be, it might be helpful, especially for second language learners, but even for, for native speakers as well, because it, it, it brings about the fact that language is fundamentally messy. And, Thus, it might make it easier for a second language language learner if they know that there's no perfect way of speaking that particular language. Mm. And it might make, uh, I think, learners that are more comfortable just trying to do as best as they can to get their meaning across, because that's actually what we're doing in general. At least that's what we think. So whether you're learning English or French or Spanish, there's no perfect language. What matters is that we can do the best that we can to kind of collaborate to uh, help one another understand what it is we're trying to say.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so uh, what questions do we need to ask to better understand language?
0: Well, I think the idea of language as gerades uh, sort of can provide sort of many new insights into sort of a lot of age-old questions like, you know, whether words have stable meanings. And we already talked about that doesn't seem to be mm-hmm. the case. Um, it also can help us understand why it is that only sort of humans appear to have this very complex communicative system they call language, and apes, uh, for example, other non-human apes do not. And also, you know, it might help us to think about whether language can shape how we think. So, you know, when it comes to meaning, um, turns out that words don't really have fixed meanings in the way that we sort of tend to think. So we have dictionaries, of course, but even when you look at a dictionaries, for each word, there's always tons and tons of different meanings. Yeah. And, you know, when you take, a, you take a word such as light, I mean, it can be a light dinner, it can be a light infantry vehicle, it could be a light cruiser, it can be a light afternoon, and it's the same word, light, but it means very different things in these different contexts. So really what matters is the context in which we use the words. Um, and, 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 and as we mentioned before with the door example, that we are perfectly happy with that. We don't really notice that door means mm-hmm. a solid object in, on one occasion and then uh, an opening on another occasion. Um, So, it's something that is sort of built into the way we we use language more generally. Mm
2: -hmm. We spoke with another colleague about the notion of language difficulty. What is your take on that? Do you think that some languages are inherently more difficult to learn than others? I think
0: it's a a good question. And I, I do think, yes, that some languages are more difficult to learn than others. Um, and that, that actually applies both to first languages, so the, the, mm-hmm. the native languages that we learn, but also to second language languages as well. So, for example, um, when it comes to second language learning, um, the the specifics of your native language can influence how easy it will be to learn another language. So if it's another language that's sort of quite similar to your first language, that's relatively easier to learn than if it's very different. So, for example, English has sort of fixed word order. So in a sense that if I say John loves Mary, uh, John is a person doing the loving, and Mary is a person being loved. But in many other languages, you can actually... uh, sort of move the words around more freely um, and what in what you have instead are case marking so you have little sort of endings of words that indicates who is doing one uh, what to whom and and in those cases what that if you're used to learning to speaking English then if you have to learn a language that relies on these case marking that can actually be quite tricky so languages like Turkish for example use case marking to indicate who does what to whom and so that can pr- pr- that can make it sort of slightly, Harder. And there's actually there's a, there's a nice study from the Netherlands from a few years ago where they looked at uh, people coming into the Netherlands and who had to, you know, they were moving to the Netherlands, so they have to learn Dutch. Mm-hmm. And uh, they analyzed how easy it was for people to learn Dutch given their native language. And, the, and you could clearly see that there were some interesting differences that you could measure quantitatively in terms of how easy it was for people to pick up those languages. But also, when it comes to first languages, and that's sort of more controversial, I suppose. Um, some of the work that I've been involved with in studying Danish, my, my native language, um, is that that not only is Danish, uh, which has a reputation for being hard to learn as a second language, um, it's actually also hard for Danish children to learn, which is, mm-hmm. I, I think, quite, quite interesting. That's why mm-hmm. I actually got involved in this uh, study of Danish in the first place, because I mm-hmm. actually had... Hadn't really uh, looked at uh, Danish at all, but but what what we have discovered is that Danish children uh, are behind in learning, for example, uh, vocabulary, uh, learning the past tense system of Danish, uh, and this is compared to children learning their neighboring the neighboring languages like Swedish and Norwegian, um, and and in, in a sense, Denmark is a uh, you know, it's a wealthy country with a good welfare system, it's a good educational system, so there's no external reasons for why children should have a hard time learning Danish. Yet, what we've been able to demonstrate is that Danish children actually have problems learning Danish. And the reason, we think, has to do with the sound structure of the language. So Danish um, speech has in, incorporates a lot of vowels, and also um, there's a tendency to swallow the ends of words And in addition to that, to turn some consonants into semi-vowels. And so what you get is these sort of long stretches of vowel-like sounds, and that appear to create problems for uh, young children. And we've shown that, for example, in in baby uh, experiments. So, for example, if I give you a sentence of Danish, so if I wanted to say, I'm out on a desert island, I would say, And that probably sounds just like gibberish to you, but... But part of what happens is that that the the sort of very um, uh, vocalic nature of Danish makes it very difficult to f- figure out where words end and others begin. And that seemed to be causing problem for Danish children. But on top of that, what we also discovered in, in a project that we call the Puzzle of Danish project, uh, which I have a small research group at the University uh, uh, Aarhus University in Denmark. We have found that even adults too seem to be processing uh, their native language differently. So we've done matching experiments in Denmark and in Norway, and what we observed is that both at the at the basic sound level, at the sen- at the sentence level, and even at the dialogue level, uh, Danes appear to behave differently when they're processing language. Essentially, what they mm. have to do is that they have to rely much more on the context, they have to be more guessing more what the other person uh, is saying Mm -hmm. than say Norwegians. And that shows up in in very interesting ways. So yes, I do think that both when it comes to second language learning, but even to with first language learning, that some languages are more easy to learn than others. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Interesting.
0: Yeah, fascinating.
2: Uh,
1: So in your book's epilogue, You discuss the implications of the improvisatory nature of language for artificial intelligence. So it thrills me to get to ask on this podcast, should our listeners be preparing themselves for the robot uprising?
0: Well, again, a short answer is no. (laughs) You you heard it here first, everyone. um, Well... I mean, clearly, modern computers and, and artificial intelligence system or AI systems are doing amazing things, there's no doubt about that. I mean, they can land aircrafts, they can steer a spacecraft, you know, across 170 miles of vacuum of space to land on Mars safely and, and fly little helicopters on Mars. Um, and, you know, AI can beat humans in chess, Go and many other uh, games that we used to think of these as sort of the sign of ultimate intelligence. Like, mm-hmm. Chess. Um, And when it comes to language, we've also seen some amazing feats of of these um, sort of modern AI systems. So so we have Google Translate that does some decent translation, although you don't always want to rely on it for sure, uh, complete. But still, it's pretty amazing what they're doing. Um, And you have what's sort of these what's called deep learning models, these uh, large-scale systems that actually can generate interesting. Text. So, for example, one model which is called GPT-3, uh, it can generate business reports that are indistinguishable from, tho- from those that are written by mm-hmm. journalists. And so you have people trying to guess: is this written by a machine or a person? And people are a chance, actually. Um, and so, actually, currently, I'm actually involved in a project here at Cornell. Uh, with Lauren De Bruyne from Romance Studies and, and Comparative Literature, where we're trying to have um, some of these AI models to generate poetry. So what we're interested in is actually trying to find out how well these models can do in generate poetry compared to Cornell undergraduates. Um, so, what we do, we prompt them with so a few lines from, say, an Emily, Emily Dickinson poem and then we have uh, the AI machine sort of complete that in whatever it thinks should go and undergraduates as well. Now, we don't have any results yet, but what we are wanting to see is um, if what might be special about the way humans generate poetry compared to, say, a machine, and that can tell us something about what's unique to human vis-a-vis our use of language. But one of the things that's also important to note in this regard and coming sort of back to, uh, to your question is that despite all these amazing linguistic abilities that these AI systems do have, they don't really understand anything of what they say. They really have no understanding mm-hmm. of the meaning of what they're saying. What they're doing is very incredibly sophisticated pattern matching. And they do that on a gigantic scale. I mean, they have they been exposed to sort of over hundreds and hundreds, billions of words taking from books, uh, the internet, Wikipedia, and so on. So they have loads and loads of knowledge, way more than any of us will ever be able to absorb on our own. And what they do is that they, um, they just spew back based on little chunks of what they learn. So what they do, they don't really collaborate. There's no collaboration mm-hmm. in, in the way that they're, they're producing their language, in the, in the same way that, for example, when we are talking now, uh, you're saying, mm-hmm, and so on. So we are collaborating when we're interacting uh, together here. They, but these computers are just spewing back the best fitting linguistic pattern they can come up with, given what they were asked to do. So unless we start teaching computers to play charades, Uh, then I don't think we have to worry too much about the robot uprising. But I think what we might have to worry more about is people using these systems in various ways to manipulate other people. So, for Hmm. example, that is what can be used to propagate fake news and Uh conspiracy theories and so on. That's, I think, what we should put our worry in. Not, again, we don't have to worry about the robots. I think, you know, the Terminator scenario is probably not very likely. It's a good movie, but... (laughs) <laughs>
1: not a Well, it's still, I mean, not to get too far afield, but I, a lot of those movies about the machines rising up and destroying us are really movies about humankind destroying themselves. So,
0: that is true. That is true. That's, 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 that's why, that's why that my, my worry is more about people using the technology Absolutely. rather than the technology itself taking over.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: yeah well, and for now we we are still the ones who can identify all the pictures of a bicycle. So we're <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, good, thank you. <laughs> the, the poetry study sounds fascinating about the Emily Dickinson.
0: so one one thing that's interesting, it's although we just found out a, a way of making it initially it couldn't figure out how to rhyme. So I could actually do a pretty <laughs> good Emily Dickinson. Uh, in terms of the kind of the cadence, the word use, and so on. Um, but it couldn't rhyme. So which, which it kind of makes sense when you think about it. So all, all these machines have is text. And, of course, English, given the mapping from spelling to sound in English, oh. which is quite complex, it's not really. it doesn't have any good feeling of it. But we've been mm-hmm. able to sort of monkey about with it a bit. Um, and uh, now it's a, it's a little bit better uh, in, in doing, but, but it's, it's, it's really interesting that, uh, and, and it, some of it looks pretty good, actually. Um, but again, what it's doing, it's sort of taking little chunks of, of language than is at the before. Of course, it's, it's already, it's read all of em, Emily Dickinson's work.
2: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Um, at least all the stuff that's available, uh, in, in book form. Yeah. Um, and, but it's really quite exciting. So, and then we're we also gonna we're gonna do various kinds of analysis of it in terms of, um, things that we know from some of my other work. So, one of the things that I've shown in some of my other words that 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 most people are perhaps not aware of is that nouns and verbs, contrary to what you might have been told in, if you're taking any linguistic class, actually sound different from one another. So mm. we've shown this to be the case for English and for loads of other languages. And actually one of my current graduate students is is been doing an analysis of over 200 different languages from all over the world. And it does seem to be wow. the case that words for objects, uh, words for things and words for actions, uh, essentially uh, nouns and verbs, uh, do sound differently across all these different Like Most of them, not all of them, but most of them. And so that's, so we're going to look at, this is sort of also sometimes referred to as sound symbolism. So we're going to look at the the degree to which human poets use it, which we think they do, as opposed to machine poetry, which we think might use it less. And then another thing that we also done in some of my work is that, that again, this, this also counters this sort of this notion of, uh, like grammar rules and so on. And actually there's, there's even some suggestions that that when it comes to second language learning that focusing on multi-word combinations rather than on grammatical rules might actually lead to more fluent uh, language use. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that we've... So, so even for native language speakers, it turns out that nearly half of everything we say is actually made up of these little prefabs. Um, so various kinds of corpus analysis have shown that and even so actually it's also helpful it, it makes you um, as a second language learner it makes your uh, your production's more fluent when you use them so very interestingly there was actually it was interesting there was a, there was an article uh, in financial times by michael scarpinker i think that it was based on a, a a review paper i had written with a colleague from israel and so what he was doing, he's actually applied it. So we talk about these are called multi-word sequences or multi-word chunks. Um, and he was applying it to looking at actually the the uh, managers of soccer teams in Britain. Mm. And what he noticed was that when mm-hmm. they were when they were trying to sort of, because many of those are not native English speakers, and when they were trying to sort of form sentences from scratch, they didn't do so well. But when they just used these sort of phrases that are often used in soccer, they were just perfectly fluent. Um, so he has sort of some, he talked about, he talked about it. So it's kind of fun how somebody in the press sort of picked up on mm-hmm. stuff we do from a more academic perspective. But what that, what that suggests, and other people have, have argued that too, is that that a a useful way of helping second language learners to become more fluent is actually having them pick up on these multiple chunks and then Mm -hmm. use them uh, because then you can, uh, that makes it easier. Uh, Also it actually incidentally makes it easier to learn even if you're learning a language that has say grammatical gender. um, Once you have them in in, in these chunks, it makes it easier to learn them than if you try to do it on on their own.
2: Mm You know, this reminds me, I always find it so funny that one of the first phrases that many language programs teach their students is, do you speak language X in the target language, right? So presumably going to Spain and you say in Spanish, you know, do you speak Spanish? First of all, exactly. (laughs) But first of all, of course the people speak Spanish. And second of all, then they start speaking Spanish back at you, and you have no idea. Um, so it does make you sound very intelligible and and you yeah. know fluent, um, which is funny. But it,
0: yeah, and no, I can have a it can, it can have a downside. So yeah. it reminds me of one time it was I, sp- I spent some time in the Netherlands at the Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics, and then I decided well I was going to, I was going to buy a train ticket, so I had sort of just practice what what to say, so I went mm-hmm. out and said it, and then. The person that they counted on, like, <laughs> so they yes. had to switch, switch yep. back. To English. So, yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but in general, the more we can use these multi word chunks, the, the better. Um, and it also appeared to be how kids actually learn their mm-hmm. native language in the first place, mm-hmm. anyway. So it's kind of so yeah, no, there, there can't be sort of too much focus on grammar rules, I think might not be as, as useful. So actually, in, in some of my more recent work, we've been, we've been looking at finding new ways of, of trying to help second language learners uh, to sort of become more fluent. So, so I think sometimes what happens in, in second language learning teaching is that it, it's not necessarily teaching, well, what I'm interested in is being able to sort of use language in the moment. And so a lot of the teaching is that clearly we need to be able to read and all that, all that kind of stuff and that's very useful. But, but sometimes, you know, I, I want to sort of figure out how can we sort of better be able to ask for directions on a street corner and mm-hmm. actually understand what people are saying. And the, the problem is that it, it's really fast. And when you ask people in a sec, in a different language, they just seem like they talks are incredibly fast. And and so what we've been, first, in the first instance, been developing is new ways of measuring proficiency in the second language in the here and now. So one thing that that we've been using is essentially sort of utterance recall, how easy it is for people to recall a sentence that they hear in in this uh, uh, second language. And that does seem to be a very good predictor of how well they Mm -hmm. can understand language in real time, which is what I'm interested in. Now, clearly there's many other things we need to use our second language for, like writing and and so on. Um, But but anyway.
2: So... uh... Coming back to your book, The Language Game, especially for those people in our audience who are language teachers or maybe language learners, I think the notion of improvisation and charades is definitely a very intriguing one. And this is something that a lot of people already do in a language, in a second language classroom, right? I mean, we always try to mimic these contexts to allow students to use language in context, so what do you think is the most significant takeaway for readers, especially if we think of language educators as readers of your book?
0: Well, I think what I'd like to think of the book is that it's a, it's a fundamentally sort of positive book in the sense that it points out that language is fundamentally collaborative. So it's kind of going away from this classic idea uh, that has been suggested by people like Noam Chomsky and Steven Pinker and others that, you know, that there's all this grammar built into the head and so on. But rather, what we are suggesting is that language is fundamentally collaborative. And I think it's a unique human thing in that regard. So, So we think that languages probably are most... Uh, and our greatest uh, accomplishment. Um, And and crucially, it's not a product of individual design or brilliant foresight. It's really the result of all of us coming together, playing many, many, many uh, successive games of essentially linguistic charades. And so in our daily interactions, We don't really have to worry about constructing sort of complex grammar or anything like that. But really, what we should aim at doing, and especially as second language learners, is really trying to find the solution to the specific conversational challenges of the moment. And what happens, both in our own lives and of course in the life of the languages, that over time the system of communication emerges, that we figure out how to use this language that we've been exposed to in particular contexts. And then we can use it in other contexts. So, so the sort of part of the takeaway message from the book is that humanity's most important inventions, language, actually turns out to be completely unplanned. It's a side effect and you know, a collective accident of just, just trying to make ourselves understood in the moment.
2: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, here is our call to action. Buy the book, read the book, and then make sure that you focus on teaching language and context and it's all about communication.
0: I agree.
1: So, uh, where can our listeners find out more about your work in your book?
0: Well, the book. Um, I would suggest just googling uh, "Basic Books," which is a publisher, and "Language Game," which is the title, the main title of the book. And now we also have a few articles we've written that one out in Wall Street Journal, one in New Scientist. That where readers or, or listeners can get, sort of, more information if they want. But the book is the main source. When it comes to my own work uh, here at Cornell, um, my lab website, uh, my, the name of my lab is Cognitive Science of Language Lab, and so if they just put that into Google, Cognitive Science of Language Lab, uh, you should get, as uh, one of the top hits, uh, a link to my lab, and there's more information about the work that we do, in my lab, uh, of course, there's also a link to the book. I'm also on Twitter, if for those of the listeners who are interested in that. So, uh, and I often tweet either about you know, our own work, but also about others' work that I found interesting and so on. So, if they're interested in that, my Twitter handle is at mh_underscore_christiansen, and Christiansen is spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-S-E-N. Great. And we'll add that to the show notes as well.
2: Morton, before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share a word in a language you speak, you love, you are learning, you want to learn. A word that makes you laugh. What is that word?
0: Well, I'm actually going to go with a made-up nonsense word, Ooh. just to be different. So the word is cameloso. <laughs> so... Why am I? Why am I uh, bringing up this word? Well, this was a made-up nonsense word that was created by some uh, Norwegian uh, comedians in a TV show uh, where they were making fun of the Danes and their impossible language. <laughs> so they were. So they had this skit where somebody was trying to get a fix for his bicycle. So he went into a hardware store and. Because of the language, they were sort of making fun that Danes can't understand one another. They, they, they were trying to communicate, and they couldn't. They, were just, they couldn't even remember the word for hello. And they were sort <laughs> of uh, just going back and forth. And then one time, at one point, the, uh, the store owner would say, cameloso and give him essentially a file um and then you just have to take it and then uh, he left and his bike was still broken um and then uh, at the end there was sort of like one of them was like uh, trying to make an appeal to the united nations and the general community so we needed help in denmark otherwise the society would collapse of course it's not quite as bad as that but they're really <laughs> making fun of their neighbors so th- this word Camelosa becomes sort of uh a a sort of a label for that. So actually, if people look it up uh, on YouTube, they can actually see that little uh, skit. It's on YouTube. Um,
2: So it's quite funny.
0: It's really funny.
2: Uh, And it makes me laugh
0: all the time, so. uh.
2: You know, I think that's what artificial intelligence is also not quite good at, Um, comedy.
0: Right. <laughs> well, not, not deliberate comedy. So sometimes uh, if you <laughs> read some of the things they'll write, they, it's like they're funny, but not because they're intended to be yes, funny. Yes, yes. At
1: any rate, uh, this was really a treat. Very interesting and a lot of fun for me. So thank you so much for speaking of language with us, Morton.
0: Well, thanks for having me. This was re- I really enjoyed it, too. So um, um, thank you for the interest in the book and my work. I really appreciate it.
2: Next week, we speak with two Cornell students about their experiences over the last few years learning languages in different modalities. Until then, auf wiederhören.
0: The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at
1: lrc.cornell.edu. Or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
2: Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz.
1: Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan
0: Gable, and Joe Gibson.
2: Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University.
1: As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University.
2: We thank our listeners and do stay tuned for our next episode.